0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: Open our Bibles to Psalms 33. Please stand for the reading of the word. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded it, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works, the king is not saved by mighty army, the warrior is not delivered by great strength, a horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have hoped in you.
2: All right, turn in your hymnals to 224. I may not know much, but I know who I believe is. That should be sufficient. Sing, I know. chapter 2, we use the word gospel a lot in Christian churches. Usually when we say the word gospel, we're talking about the finished work of Christ, what he actually accomplished, his death, burial, resurrection, and then his ascension on high to sit at the right hand of God the Father. But Paul here in chapter 2 is going to use a very interesting phrase in verse 2. He said that he had great boldness in God to speak to the Thessalonicans the gospel of God amongst much opposition. What does Paul mean by the gospel of God as opposed to the gospel of Christ? And by the way, if there is a gospel of God, shouldn't that be enough? I mean, after all, God did certain definitive things, certain things on purpose that he was determined to do and then fully accomplished, so much so that he wrote names down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Before he did anything, before he made the first thing, he made a plan, and he wrote down certain names because he was going to save certain people. And then he sent his son to planet Earth for the purpose of redeeming those particular people. And then raised him, proving that the sin penalty for all those people was fully done. It was completely accomplished. And then God decided that his son was eventually going to come back, get his church, and the church was going to glorify Christ for all of eternity. That was God's plan, and that's really, really good news, that God has a plan, and that he didn't just leave it up to us to decide what the plan was going to be. He didn't leave it up to us to decide how we were going to save ourselves. He actually accomplished everything necessary for creation to exist, and he keeps it existing And then he determined exactly what he was going to do. It's very definitive. That's what I'm trying to point out. It's very exacting. He did it exactly on purpose the way he wanted to do it, according to the good pleasure of his own will, according to the glory of his grace. He accomplished the salvation of particular people. And I think that's why Paul could call that the gospel of God. The more you know about the God of the Bible, and the more you know about what he actually did and accomplished and was determined to do, is currently doing, will do ultimately, the more you know about that, the more you can say, well, our God, the God of the Bible, gives us really good news because we are saved in him. So the gospel of God, if it is true, Everything I just said, if it is true that God is the one who fully accomplished all of that, and so we are safe and secure in him, if that is true, shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't the gospel of God be sufficient? Paul, as he was traveling through the Macedonian area, every city he went into, he was besought with trouble, People would drive him out of the city. People would stir up the local officials and magistrates and ultimately the Roman army. No matter where Paul went and preached this very good news of God, there was massive opposition to it. And part of that opposition was that when he would go into a city and preach this gospel of God and preach the fully accomplished work of Christ... After he was driven out of the city, people would come along and say other things about him and make up rumors about him and lie about him. And so this letter to the Thessalonians is also a defense of Paul so that he could say, I wasn't like that. Those things they're saying about me aren't true. In fact, watch how often in this chapter Paul says, as you know, as you yourselves know. You saw me. You watched me. You know what I did. You know what I preached. You know that I didn't take advantage of you. You know that I wasn't here trying to get wealthy on the backs of the gospel I was preaching. You know that I was giving you the full counsel of God that he delivered to me. You know how I acted. So why would you so quickly believe these critics of mine who would come along later? But as we're reading chapter 2, and we start to hear the kinds of things that Paul is being accused of, and as Paul defends himself against these things, you're also going to hear echoes of the things that are going on in the church today, which is why I said, wouldn't the gospel, the full sufficiency of God, wouldn't that be enough? I mean, it's really all we do here at GCA. We don't have a lot of programs for you, we don't have fireworks after church, and part of our worship doesn't include smoke machines, and we don't do stick ministry, and we don't have people dancing with flags, and we don't, we don't have all the stuff that is so common in the modern church. And part of the reason that it's so common in the modern church is because it puts people in seats, because people want to be entertained, and so the church world has incorporated the world's type of entertainment in order to bring people in. And yet I ask the question again, but wouldn't just teaching people the gospel of God, wouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't that be enough reason for you to get up out of bed, get dressed, get in the car, and come gather with the saints of God to hear about the good things that God has done? Isn't that enough? Why is it that people feel that they need to be entertained? and that their ego needs to be stroked, and that they need to be told how wonderful they are in order to come to church. And if they come to church and they don't get a full helping of what they're looking for, they, with their itching ears, will go find somebody who will tell them how great they are. Well, that's all going to come up here in chapter 2. As Paul is defending himself and saying, look, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. The underlying premise is, but the gospel of God that I brought you, isn't that enough? Look what I did for you. I gave you the very words of life. I told you how to be saved eternally, a thing you would not or could not figure out on your own had God not sovereignly sent you somebody to tell you about it. And so I came and I told you about it under great persecution. And I came and told you anyway, I gave myself away for you. He's even going to say, I gave you my very soul. Suke, the Greek word for soul. I gave you my very life. I laid myself down for your benefit so that you could hear about this glorious gospel of God. Shouldn't that be enough? It should be. So let's read the chapter, and then we'll go back and start picking it apart. First Thessalonians chapter 2 starts with the phrase, For you yourselves know. Paul is making his argument based on what they should know. You watched it, you witnessed it, you should know this. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God, amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God who examines our heart. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from man, neither from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having thus a fond affection for you. And we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. How working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And you are witness, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but they are hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. And yet, Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus At his coming, for you are our glory and our joy. So Paul is saying, the critics have come. I have left you. I've been bereft of you. I have longed to come back to you. I've been hindered repeatedly from getting back to you. So I'm writing this letter to you trying to stir up your memory, trying to encourage you in the things that I have already taught you, in the things that I have already told you. Don't listen to the critics. Don't listen to the fact that they're going to accuse me of all kinds of things. Did you hear the accusations in there? Mm -hmm. Paul was defending himself and saying that the message that he came and taught wasn't deceptive, but that it was a truth without error. It was God's own gospel. He had to argue that his motivations were not impure, but that he was being holy and righteous and clean in the way he was living his life among the Thessalonians. He had to say that the method that he used was not some kind of a trick. He was not there to mislead them. He was not there to deceive them. He taught them straightforwardly the truth as it had been given to him, as it had been entrusted to him. So he wasn't trying to appease them. As he says, I wasn't trying to be a man pleaser. I'm trying to please God. Mm. And the way to please God is to say what God told me to tell you. That's pleasing to God. But if I was trying to please you, I would tell you things like how great you are and how much God needs you and that God created you because he was lonely and he needed company. And so he made you. I would tell you the kind of stuff that would make you feel good about you so that when you left, you wouldn't be thinking, what a great God we have. You'd be thinking, what a great guy I am. (laughs) Boy, I have really accomplished some good stuff. By the way, has anybody heard anything like that in the current church? That, that kind of happens everywhere. Paul was accused of doing that very thing and said, no, I would never do that. I would think that if you have a biblical style of preaching and understanding of the word, that you would know enough to avoid that sort of thing. And yet that's exactly what is attracting large crowds in stadiums in Texas. Anyways, um, did I say that out loud? <laughs> So Paul argues repeatedly, look, you yourselves know. You know what I was like among you. You should be my witnesses. You should be my defenders. You should have argued against the critics and thrown them out. For you yourselves know, brethren... That when we came to you, when we preached this gospel of God, when we preached about Christ to you, when we preached about the divine everlasting plan of the Almighty, when we told you all of that, you believed it, you understood it. We see the evidence within you that you're being saved by the power of God. And therefore, we know, says verse 1, that our coming to you was not in vain, it was not empty, it was not pointless. Again, put shoe leather on it. Paul got beaten. Paul was imprisoned. Paul took lashes. Day and night in the deep. He talks about being hungry often. Every city he goes into, people are rising up against him and driving him out. He's having to be stolen away at night and hidden from the enemies who swear that they're going to kill Paul. He's having a tough time, and yet he's come into Thessalonica at great cost and expense, both monetarily and physically, to himself. He has come to Thessalonica, and he has preached this gospel believing that the word of God would accomplish exactly what the word of God is supposed to accomplish. The very word that he knows always accomplishes what God sent it to accomplish. And so he's willing to take the beatings, and he's willing to take the criticism, and he's willing to go through the hunger, and he's willing to go through the difficulty of it all, so that he can have that moment of going, this was worth it, because you believed. And because you believed, I know that you're going to be eternally secure, because you are part of the plan of an eternally powerful God. Therefore, I have full confidence in you, which is why he can close this chapter by saying, you, you're our glory, you're our joy. I'm not enjoying the beatings. I'm not real big on the whole hunger thing. I could do without some of those lashes. I could do without my enemies. I'm tired of getting stoned outside Lystra and left for dead. I'm weary of all that, but it's worth it because you heard it. It's worth it because God is in the process of saving you, and I get to be witness to the work of God in your lives. That's worth it. And how is he accomplishing that? Well, not with smoke machines. He didn't do a little interpretive dance of the gospel for anyone. He didn't come in trying to cajole them with cleverness. He didn't come in with fancy words. He didn't come in trying to get them to make a profession by using the exact right approach to get them to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He didn't do any of that. He did it by the power of the gospel of God. And that, as I kept saying this morning, and will keep saying, is enough. That is sufficient. The gospel of an eternally electing, gracious, powerful God is enough. It's enough to get you from here in your destitute state, in your sinful flesh, that is decaying every day. It's enough to get you from there all the way to glory, to standing in the presence of God where there's no more sickness, no more death, where God himself will wipe away every tear. I want to go there. That sounds like a good deal. How do you get there? Not through stuff, not through emotional manipulation. You get there through the gospel of God, which when you hear it and you embrace it, and you trust it, and you believe it is enough to get you from here to eternity. And that's all Paul concentrated on. And so that is all that we should concentrate on. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, he could have named several other cities there, too. There are several cities he went into where he was cast out. In fact, when we were doing the introduction to the book of 1 Thessalonians, we read a little bit out of Acts 16. Turn there for a moment because we were tracing the journeys of Paul as he was going through Macedonia. And I purposefully left out one big section because I wanted to get to it here where Paul talks about his suffering and his mistreatment in Philippi. So turn to Acts 16 and let's see what that looked like. And again, as you're reading this, put flesh and blood on it. This is a real human being who went through this kind of suffering. And he went through it for the good of the people who would hear the gospel of God. He was willing to endure all of this for those who would hear it. And then, surprise, surprise, while he was in prison, there was somebody there who heard it. So God knows what he's doing. Acts 16, starting at verse 14. A certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. In those two little verses you have everything you need to know about sovereign election. Right there. Because Lydia is from the city of Thyatira then she's a worshiper of God and she was listening to Paul. The Lord then opened her heart. He didn't trick her into believing. He didn't get her to make a profession so that he could reassure her that she was now saved. All the very common modern techniques of salvation in the modern church, he didn't do any of that. What he did was he told her the gospel, told her about Jesus Christ, and then God did everything that only God can do. God opened her heart. God quickened her understanding, opened her eyes and ears and mind so that she could pay attention and respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. And when she and her house had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, so far, what is Paul doing that's wrong? I mean, for what reason uh, should Paul be locked up so far? No reason. reason. He's just doing good. He's just saving people eternally by telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 16. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling, Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, Paul's reaction in a minute is going to demonstrate that she was not speaking truthfully. Apparently, she was speaking mockingly. Verse 18, and she continued doing this for many days, But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit that was in her, the reason she was mocking the gospel of God and the apostles of God out there preaching the gospel of God, the reason she was mocking that way is because she had an evil, demonic spirit within her. And Paul turned around and talked right past her to the spirit that was driving her. And so... She continued doing this many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment because the power of Christ is superior to the power of demonic spirits. And so the spirit left her. Now, it was by that spirit She was fortune-telling, and as we just read, she was bringing a lot of money to her masters through this fortune-telling. So apparently she was pretty good at it. And she was only good at it because she was a demoniac. So if you want your fortune told by a demoniac, she's the person you go to. And so now the power to tell fortunes by that demon has been driven out of her, So verse 19, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace, into the Agora, before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, we being Romans. So not only is there a real anti-Semitic bent to what they're arguing, but they're saying these Jews have come into our very Roman city and are upsetting the whole society. And what did Paul actually do? He freed a woman. He freed her of the demonic influence that was torturing her that was causing her to mock the servants of God. So all they did was good. Kind of like Jesus, just walked around doing good. So they nailed him to a cross. Same thing, Paul's out there doing good stuff, but the enemies of God who are always present and always willing to stir things up against the people of God brought Paul to the chief magistrates and argued that the whole city was in an uproar because of these Jews, and they're proclaiming religion, customs, that it's not even lawful for us to accept or to observe, because we're Romans, and the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them, and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Oh, good, Paul's taking another beating. And when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Not only are they in prison, but then they're in the inner prison, and then their feet are in chains, so they're not getting away. And... This jailer's job is to make sure that they stay there securely until the time of their trial. Okay, so what did Paul do to deserve that? What did Paul do to deserve getting beaten with rods? Remember, this is after all the other beatings he's taken. And it's happening yet again, and it would be easy to look at these circumstances and say, what is God doing? Why, why would he let Paul go through that? I mean, doesn't he love Paul? He chose Paul. He elected Paul. He converted Paul. He blinded Paul, and then he gave him his sight back. He's clearly for Paul. He's with Paul, and yet Paul is suffering to no end. Why? Well, because that jailer needed to be saved. That jailer needed to hear the gospel of God. And as long as he was working down in the prison and inside the inner prison, and as long as he was only just dealing with criminals, he was never going to hear the gospel of God. He wasn't going to come out and go find Paul to hear it. So God brought Paul to him. And the way he did it was through beatings and jailings and a mob and hatred against his message for doing nothing but good releasing a woman from her demonic influence, preaching the gospel to Lydia here, doing nothing but good, and then he suffered. Does this sound familiar to any of us? Mm. That we go through our lives trying to to do good, to follow after God, to follow after Christ, and then trouble comes, difficulty comes, pain comes, our struggles come. What we have to remember is, We don't know the whole story. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know what the end result of this suffering is going to be. When Paul was being thrown into the prison, he didn't know that jailer was about to get saved. But he went through it. So, verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't that a great image? In the inner prison, in chains, and they're singing to God. And the others in the the jail had to be lifting up their heads and going, what is that? What is happening down here? People don't come here and sing. People don't come here and praise God. The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly... There came a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison house was shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. All those prisoners who were listening to Paul and Silas sing about God were suddenly free. The doors were open, their chains fell off. Notice that it's everybody, according to Luke, everybody's chains fell off. That's a real delivering God right there. Verse 27, and when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. The jailer was responsible to the Roman guard and ultimately responsible to Caesar. And if he lost the prisoners, he would give his own life in place of the prisoners. They would take his life instead. So rather than go through that, once he realized that the prisoners were unchained and the doors were opened, he just decided to kill himself. Suicide seemed better than the beatings and the torture and the death that he was going to suffer at the hands of the Romans. So he was about to kill himself, verse 28, and Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Why was everybody still there? I'm always sort of amazed by that statement. You would think if you were a prisoner down there for any other thing, and your chains fell off, and the door opened, you'd go running. Why were they still there? I think it's because they were amazed. Yeah, they had to just be stunned by the whole thing. Wait, there were two men singing to God? And then the doors opened, and our chains fell off. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. Let's sing that song
3: again.
2: <laughs> sing that song again. Yeah. Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. And he called for lights and he rushed in trembling with fear. This is the, the jailer. And he fell down in front of Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a great question. Hmm. He went from your prisoners, and I'm going to put you in chain, and I'm going to put you in the deepest prison, to calling them sir. Hmm. Clearly, you know some stuff I need to know. And when you sang to your God, the prison doors were open and the chains fell off. How symbolic is that? Free These people were all freed, enough so that the jailer would say, what do I have to do to be saved? Mm -hmm. Now, this would be a key moment for Paul to say, well, you have to repeat after me, and then we're going to say the sinner's prayer, and then uh, you're going to make a profession of faith, and then you have to tell three friends about it, and then... Or... Well, you have to be baptized to be saved or just any of the stuff, any of the methodology that is so popular in the church today. You'll notice that Paul didn't say any of that. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. Why could Paul say that? Because the gospel is enough. Yes. He said, just do that. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that'll be salvation to you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. That means he took them to his house. They were in prison. They were his prisoners. And then here they preach to the household of the jailer. And he took them that very hour of the night. And he washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house. And he set food before them. And he rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now, when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, go release those men, because it was apparently time to go before the judge, go in front of the magistrates. It's time for their trial, so go get them out of the jail. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. In other words, run away. Leave here as quickly as you can. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without a trial, men who are Romans, and they have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and come get us and bring us out. I like that defiant side of Paul. I like that every once in a while, Paul will just stand up for what's right. The policeman reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they, the magistrates, were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, not just Jews, but that they were Romans. And he came and he appealed to them when they had brought them out, and they kept begging them to just leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of, what a surprise, Lydia the one who God had opened her heart to attend to the things that Paul was saying. They went into the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them, and they departed. Chapter 17 is Paul going into Thessalonica. Okay, so now back to Thessalonians 2. Paul has just said, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, Those two words are exact. Not only did they suffer, yes, they were put in jail. They were beaten with rods. Yes, they suffered in Philippi, but they were also mistreated because they are Roman citizens and it was illegal for them to be beaten without a trial. They hadn't yet been found guilty of anything. In fact, they weren't guilty of anything, and yet they had been beaten and jailed. So not only did they suffer, but they were also mistreated in Philippi. As you know. But even after that, even after we'd endured all that, even after we had suffered all that, again, put shoe leather on it. Think about it if this was you. When you finally got out of Philippi by the skin of your teeth, are you likely to go to the next city in line and do it again? (laughs) No, you're going to find a comfortable place in the wilderness and just go, okay, God, I tried, okay? I gave it my best shot, all right? Instead, after we had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness of our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. He also got a tremendous amount of opposition in Thessalonica. And so despite the things that Paul had gone through, despite the beatings, despite the jailings, you got to figure after a while his physical form is really worn out. you got to figure emotionally he's really tired of this. And yet he went and preached the gospel there and gave credit to God. He said it was through the boldness, through the power, through the authority of God that despite his beatings, despite the amount of opposition, despite everything he'd gone through, he would still come to Thessalonica and still preach the gospel of God. Why? Because the gospel of God is enough. And he had just seen it knock off chains, open doors save a Philippian jailer and his household. He had just seen what the power of the gospel of God could actually accomplish. So in the midst of all this trouble and his beatings and his pain and the agony and the mistreatments, in the midst of all that, he saw God. He saw the work of God. He saw the power of God. And that encouraged him to keep going, keep doing it. You know, if I were an Arminian today, well, if I were, shoot me, but um, I wonder if that'll make it to the internet. Um, You know, if I were an Arminian today and I was following the methodologies that they teach to go out and try to get people to make a profession, it would be very, very frustrating. Tom and I come out of a very Arminian church in California and... And I I used to try to tell people, and I couldn't convince people. And as often as not, I'd go to bed that night worried that that person was probably going to hell because I I just wasn't good enough to save them. I just couldn't get them to do the stuff. So it was a constant pressure on my shoulders to make sure that I said the right words, to say that I made the the presentation in the right order in the hope that they would accept Jesus and be saved. And that just became futility. That just became frustration. And then I learned about God's electing grace. And when I learned about God's electing grace, I wanted to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ more. I wanted to tell more people about it. Because what I knew for sure that I didn't know in my Arminian days what I knew for sure was God's got some sheep out there. And he's going to make sure they hear the gospel. And who knows, but he might be using me to do it. And so I'm going to tell people. And if they reject it, and if they hate it, if they turn on me and accuse me, okay, they're not sheep. Okay, go be a goat. Have at it. But every once in a while... I have the good pleasure, and I'm sure you've all had it, of talking to somebody about the things of God and talking to somebody about Christ, and you can tell their eyes light up. The lights are on and everybody's home. You can tell that they're getting it. And that makes all the other effort worth it. Anybody here taken 39 lashes yet? No. So the trials, the troubles, the difficulties, the rejections, the Facebook unfriending that you might go through here and now is nothing compared to what Paul went through. And yet, because he had seen the power of God, he continued to tell the gospel of God because it is enough. After we were mistreated and suffered, there in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from a place of error. This isn't a mistake. I began this morning by saying the plan of God, the good news of God, is definite. It is a plan that God decided and determined. And you don't need to enhance it. You don't need to try to pump it up. You don't try to make it more attractive to other people. You just tell the truth of what it is, and it will do its work. As a consequence, Paul's exhorting these people doesn't come from any kind of error or any kind of impurity. What he means is, I didn't have an agenda. I didn't tell you that so that you'd think, wow, Paul is great. I didn't tell you this so that I could gain more followers to me, so I could build the first church of Paul. He said there was no impurity to my method, to my purpose, to my plan, to my reason. The reason I am bringing you the gospel is because God is in the enterprise of saving people through that gospel. So it's not from error, it's not from impurity, and it's not by the way of deceit. I'm not lying to you. I mean, Jesus knocked me down on the Damascus Road, and I still didn't know who he was. And he gave me a commission, and he sent me out to come tell you this. In fact, Paul, when he was trying to go to Bithynia, we read it a couple weeks ago, when he was trying to head east, he got the Macedonian vision. And then it was confirmed by the Holy Spirit that he should go to Macedonia and preach. And he gets there, and God says, I have many people here. Okay, that's a guarantee. There's sheep here. Go find the sheep. Go teach the sheep. And it's not going to be without trouble. It's not going to be without problems. It's not going to be without pain. But it's not your plan. It's God's plan. So go do what I told you to do. I didn't come here by any way of deceit, any way of lying. Now, by the way, The fact that he has to say that his exhortation, his exhorting them, isn't from error, isn't from impurity, and isn't from deceit, means that his critics were telling the Thessalonians after Paul left, you know, he's probably just telling you some made-up story among the Jews. It's probably an error. It's probably not the truth. Or they're saying, well, he has some impure motive. He was here trying to raise himself up. (laughs) He's trying to take advantage of you. He's trying to enrich himself on the back of a story that he's telling. Or they might have said, well, he's just lying to you. None of that happened. Were you eyewitnesses to it? Were you there? No. Well, then Paul's just lying to you. And so that could be the only reason that Paul would bring up these particular things and say... That the gospel of God that we brought and taught you, and the way we exhorted you to be faithful to that gospel, isn't an error and it doesn't come from some kind of impurity and it doesn't come from deceit. I'm not lying to you. In fact, if Paul were a deceitful liar, if God was, if Paul was in it for his own self aggrandizement, if he was in it, making up a story so that he could gain followers to himself, after the beatings and the jailings and the stonings and the shipwrecks, was it worth it? No. No. If Paul was a liar, he would have given up a long time ago. It was only by the power of God that he was able to keep going, to keep preaching, because he knew God's sheep were there. But... Here's the reason he kept going, verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God, it's a really interesting word. The Greek word means something is shown to be genuine by testing. It's like testing the metal of your armor before you go into battle. Paul said, these things I'm going through, the pain, the suffering I'm going through, is God's way of testing me, checking me to see if I'll continue in this. And having been tested by the difficulties I've gone through, I'm approved by God to be entrusted with this gospel. And that's why we speak. So we speak. Not as pleasing men. Boy, that comes up a lot in the Bible. Several of the New Testament authors come up with, should we seek to please man or God? For if we seek to be pleasing to men then we cannot be the servants of God so Paul says we're not trying to be men pleasers I didn't come here telling you I mean if I was in it for myself if I was really just making up a lie so that I could draw people to myself I wouldn't tell you this and I wouldn't say oh yeah Christianity you're going to suffer that's not the way you gain adherence to your religion You don't say, yes, come join me. Take a beating. Come on, join us. We're going to jail. Kumbaya, to jail, kumbaya. You don't, if you're a liar, you don't tell them this. You tell them, you know, the God who made heaven and earth thinks you're great. And he sent me here to tell you that you're great. I had a vision from him. I mean, I'm lying anyway. He came to me last night, and, and he spoke to me. And he said, go find Micah. And when you find him, tell him, hey, God thinks you're a handful of aces. I mean, God is so proud of you. He's just, He thinks you're really, really good. He's been watching you. See, just right there, even though you know I was lying, it felt good, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, you were like, well, yeah, that's kind of true. <laughs> Yeah, because you can appeal to people's egos so easily. And that's what it is to be a man pleaser. And by the way, is it worth pointing out that that's going on in a lot of churches today? Mm -hmm. Trying to gain followers on the back of God thinks you're great. When the Bible says God thinks you're a depraved, hell-bound sinner and a rebel and there's nothing good within you. And your heart is deceitful and wicked. You tell people that, you don't get a stadium in Texas. You get this. He's going to now expand on this idea of not as pleasing men, but God. God who examines our heart. God who knows my intention. God who knows whether I'm making stuff up. God who knows whether my intentions are pure or whether I'm just doing this for my own self-aggrandizement. God who examines the hearts. That's who I'm trying to please. Not you, because I can fool you. I can kid you. I can make you believe I'm all kinds of good. Can't convince God. He knows. He knows better. So I'm trying to please the God who examines the hearts. For we never came to you with flattering speech. We never came to you and told you how great you were. We never built you up in your ego. We never flattered you. Have you ever been around somebody who's flattering you? Mm -hmm. Does it feel sincere? No, you can tell right away. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor did we come as a pretext for greed. And on this one, he says, and God is my witness. Not only do you know the way I acted, but God himself is my witness that I did not come and tell you this as a pretext for greed. So why would you have to say that? Because obviously the critics said it. Obviously, the critics have have said, well, Paul's only here trying to get into your wallet. He's just trying to get money out of you. That's why he's telling you these fairy tales and all these lies, the stuff he's making up. But you yourselves know that it was not a pretense for greed, and God is the witness of this. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you You individually, you believers, or from others. Even though, as the apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Paul does not question the fact that God has absolute authority. He does not question the fact that God, being almighty, has the power and the authority to tell you to do whatever he wants you to do. He doesn't question that. And then those who are apostles of Jesus Christ have the authority of Jesus Christ and speak on the authority of Jesus Christ. And Paul had every right as an apostle of Jesus Christ to come in there and say, I have authority over you by Jesus Christ. He said, I didn't do that. Not only did I not lift myself up, I didn't lift you up. Who did he lift up? God, Jesus Christ. And that is the central issue of all Christianity. Who are you lifting up? Are you lifting up Christ? Are you lifting up God? Are you proclaiming the gospel of God in Christ? And is that enough for you? Or do you feel compelled to try to make it about something else? Anything else. I have a t-shirt that says Jesus plus nothing and that is the gospel it's all about Jesus and it's not about you and it's not about the person you're talking to and it's not about greed and it's not about ego and it's not about anything except the full sufficiency of Jesus Christ and so if you leave with nothing else this morning I hope you leave with this thought the gospel of God is enough did I plant that in your memory this morning? it's enough Did I tattoo it to your brain? Remember it, because as soon as you walk through these doors, there's going to be somebody out there, religious or non-religious, who's going to try to tell you that that's not enough. You need more stuff. No, you don't. The gospel of God is enough.
4: Observation It is so interesting to observe the things that Paul was so adamant to tell the church at Thessalonica that they that were not the motivations for him coming to them. And we look at those motivations whether it's air, deceit, pleasing of men, flattery of speech, a pretext of greed, or for the glory of men, those are. Sadly, the exact motivations that we see in so much of the modern church, and it is just a sad commentary on the church. But thankfully, as we learned very clearly, the true gospel of God doesn't come with those motivations. It's to please Him and Him alone. Father, we are thankful To take to heart the message from today, the gospel of God is pure, and when it is presented in the proper way, it's pleasing to God and not to men. There is such temptation to try to introduce various salesmanship tactics and psychological tactics that we see so frequently but these are things that rob you from your glory. Help us to stand firm and steadfast in the simple truth of the gospel and proclaim it holy and add nothing to it, so that at the end of the day, when we proclaim it, it rightfully gives Christ Jesus the most praise, the most glory, because he is the one who is deserving and not as pleasing unto men. So thank you for the truth, the sincerity of the gospel, to know that that true gospel, it is what can withstand the trials of a Philippi, of a Philippian jail, and the other false teachings can't withstand those trials that come. So we need the true, sincere gospel. Uh, We ask that you would cement that to our hearts and place it in our minds so that we could glorify you all the more. We just thank you once again for your gracious mercy upon us. And as we endeavor into the new responsibilities of a new week, we pray that we could go forth knowing that Christ Jesus has accomplished all and that we are the victors and that we could be strong in the Lord in the power of his might and that he alone would receive the glory. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.